Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels part 58. We are still in the middle of one of these very, very difficult chapters in the Gospels, John 6, um, all about this concept of the bread of life that Jesus is talking about to his disciples and the crowds and whatever religious leaders are also present uh, within this space, and Jesus says even more shocking things last week about eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, which <laughs> right. sounds very vampire-esque, but actually what we got to the point of those things indicate abiding in Messiah, yeah. uh, abiding in Torah, the true Torah that he's shown in his life, um, and how a lot of these people within these crowds took offense to that and stopped following him after that because of the, I don't know how you want to say it, very shocking manner in which he was trying to wake these people up to return and repent yeah. back to the Torah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he also, I mean, we had that underlying thread of the, the thing that seemed most important was this idea that he came down from heaven. And they were associating that with God and all that. That was also a big deal. And what's the last thing that happened? You know, the crowds, they had their problem with it, but it was a bunch of his disciples. Oh, yeah. What'd they do? It says they turned back, many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. Yeah, that was a crazy moment. And so we pick up there. I mean, the story's almost over. We didn't quite get to fit it in last week. Whatever, that happens. But still, this is really good. We're in John chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 67 through 71. Let me read that. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The plot's thickening. But, uh, okay, now let's see what's going on here, though. So Jesus is talking. He's doing all this stuff. Uh, people seem a little bothered. They're not, boy, I don't know. This one kind of pushed some buttons in him, whatever. And then even uh, many of his disciples leave. And so Jesus is like, hey, fine. You guys want to go too? I-, I think Jesus is really bothered by what has just happened. I mean, think about it. He has been rejected and abandoned by many who, you know, may have been pretty close friends. Now, obviously, they weren't of the 12, but that doesn't mean that that some of them weren't close. They were disciples. They were following him. 
So whatever it is that Jesus is feeling at the moment, right? He he it, it comes out as, you know, he lays it down for the 12 in the same way. Hey, these guys all left. Uh, do you want to go too? Cuz now's your chance. Don't let me stop you. You know that kind of I don't know. He he really seems bothered. And then Peter speaks for the group. And his response is leave. To whom shall we go? And honestly, I think probably many Christians have moments like this in their walk. It's it's a, a strange time when somehow your Christian walk, your Christian life, it, it, it feels messed up or wrong or empty. Something, something is out of whack. And at the same time, you know there's nowhere else to go. And, and so you just have to stick it out because you know that it's right. It just isn't feeling or looking or something, right? It's something's messed up. So Peter says that much. And then he says something that I think, I mean, it's, it's almost magical. I mean, this would be like Disney movie stuff. He says, you have the words of eternal life. And in that, we see that Peter gets it. What have we been talking about? We kept going back to Deuteronomy 8.3, saying, he was talking about the manna. Hey, but I'm giving you this. Why? So that you can know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Peter's saying, you have the words of eternal life. It's like he gets it. It's awesome. And then, I mean, is Peter the only one? Maybe all of the 12 do, or maybe most of them do something. But it's exactly what Jesus has been teaching. And Peter even goes a little bit further. We believe, and then as if he recognizes that's not even enough, we know you are the Holy One of God. And that phrase is kind of cool because that's exactly what a demon said to Jesus back in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. And I don't know if you remember, when demons start talking, they, they know stuff. And they start talking and Jesus shuts them up. But here, Peter knows and declares it. Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter, you know, he's using this Messiah kind of language. It's not all super explicit yet, but it's, I mean, come on, it's pretty obvious. And, and on the whole, I mean, if you just stop reading right there, this seems like, man, this is such a great moment. But still. It seems like Jesus, I don't know, he's kind of a little, he's miffed about everything that's just happened, and he's not really over it, and he comes back with something like, yeah, you know what, I don't think you really even get how bad this is, do you? I handpicked all 12 of you after spending all night in prayer with my father, and it's turned out, you know, fairly well, and yet... Even one of you is a Satan, an adversary, an enemy. And John does us the favor of explaining in advance that Jesus was referring to Judas and and his upcoming betrayal. So power-packed a little section right there, Samuel, hmm? Yeah, definitely. And part of me wonders with this declaration that Peter says in this moment could we potentially take that as a 
a sowed moment for him in terms of this wisdom that was potentially granted to him by the Spirit. I know that there was a previous encounter that Peter and Jesus had where Jesus was asking his disciples, like, who do people say that I am? And then Peter has a turn. He's like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, like, you're correct, but like, there's no way you could have gotten this on your own. Like, you had help. Um, and that gets into this Jewish aspect of receiving wisdom. There's like four different terraces or layers. There's Bashat, which is like the surface level. And then it goes into Ramez and Drosh, which is connecting back to the Hebrew scriptures. And then there's this mystical aspect, which is Sod, which is com- almost completely unexplainable. So my question is, yeah. should we take that as Sod with Peter, or is this more... Um, common sense kind of a statement from him? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a really good question, and I don't think we'll ever know the answer, but I think it's very reasonable to think that, uh, you know, this, the, the uh, one, and how, how could I say this? I'm not even sure if you said it now. Uh, this idea of sowed, we, we would look at it and go, well, this, this is when the Holy Spirit is actually revealing some things to you that maybe you could never have gotten on your own, or uh, maybe it's speeding up that process or whatever. So to just say, hey, do you think Holy Spirit's like, you know, working through Peter, teaching him some things, showing him some things? Well, I think that's very fair. Very fair. Now, it was kind of funny. You mentioned as if we've already gone through this. Oh no! Did I just spoil it? But we, it, yeah, you did like Dang the spoiler, it. yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're getting there. But yeah, I don't. I, I mean, for sure, all of these things. I, I think to act like it is impossible for us to figure things out on our own. Okay, I think that's that's kind of dumb. To act like we only ever figure things out on our own. Okay, I think that's kind of dumb too. I I. If if I'm just trying to imagine what is actually truly going on inside people, I would actually lean toward the majority of what's going on inside people is actually the Holy Spirit working and helping us. But I think that that is in concert with us actually, you know, putting forth some effort actually trying. I don't think it's a passive kind of activity where you're just kind of laying around, doing nothing, not really trying, and God's just laying wisdom on you. I don't think it works that way. I think he He works alongside us, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know if that's really addressing what you were talking about or whatever, but yeah. No, I think so. I think it is, and it gives more context to this scenario with his disciples and Let's us think about different things as we move forward. Yeah. Now remember, whatever it was you heard from us about the future, you got to forget that because we're going to get there. <laughs> but, all right, let's go to on. To be fair, behind the scenes, Paul and I are going through the Gospels like in multiple different <laughs> settings, in multiple different timelines. So it's a little complicated. So uh, just give us some grace. <laughs> yeah. If you've ever seen one of those movies where they keep switching to different points in time and doing all this stuff and you get confused, man, we're living it in real life and it's hard. It's rough. But anyway, we get to the end of John chapter six. That's kind of the end of that whole story. And I know it took us a long time to get through and it it may not feel quite as impactful because it, it wasn't, you know, 
ta-da, just all of a sudden. But if you think back through it all, I think we really have changed a lot of common interpretation. Oh, well, we didn't change it. We're, we're just offering a different view of common uh, interpretations of John 6 and things that are going on there and whatever. So hopefully that's actually, you know, uh, giving you a different view of, of the whole big story because it's, it's actually very important in that, that whole realm. But now we're going to move on to another section. And again, we're kind of going through uh, some, some basic layout of chronological working our way through the scripture. And so we kind of skip around a little bit. The next section is Matthew chapter 14, verses 34 to 36. And that's also Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark, but you'll notice this is kind of a big scene change. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So, he went from being, you know, kind of wildly unpopular there for a moment, and now all of a sudden he's the big center of attention again. So, big, big scene change. And then, I don't know, just to to say it out loud, um, we've had this little bit of confusion about where they were and where they were headed, and there seems to be some discrepancy between the stories. Our attempts to follow the chronological sequence, it's possible that that may be exaggerating that a little bit. Obviously, if you were just reading a single gospel all the way through, you wouldn't notice it much at all. But anyway, that's what's going on. Now, one way or another, at least right now, they've ended up in Gennesaret, a few miles uh, south of Capernaum. Okay, so we're, we're still on the, call it the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, but we're just a little bit south of Capernaum. So it's easy to, to imagine why he would be very well-known, very popular, etc. But when he arrives, you, you heard the word spreads like fire, and they're bringing everyone they can to him to be healed. And very much like the woman with the issue of blood, they're satisfied to just touch the fringe of his garment. You remember what that was called, Samuel? His seat. Yeah, the tzitzit. And they, too, appear to believe that they would find healing in his wings. And so both Matthew and Mark tell us that everyone who touched the fringe was made well. And if I could, I know I keep beating this drum, but I can't help it because it's an important thread that runs all the way through. Here's another instance where no mention of belief or faith or anything is brought up. It's just, he does it. And that's the end of it. Unless you got something to bring us, Samuel. No, I just think that's a little refreshing hit of positivity of seeing Jesus doing 
kingdom work among all the hardness that we just went through with John 6. So yeah. I feel refreshed and ready to tackle the next section. Reinvigorated to continue our work. <laughs> I like it. All right. So we're going to move on. <laughs> we're going to move on. This is Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And actually, these actually appear to be kind of a continuation, and I remember now that that's kind of important, because I think we're still in that area of Gennesaret. So, anyway, let's see what he's got to say here. I'm going to read from the Mark version. It says this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, this is in parentheses. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And now we leave the parentheses. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. And just for fun, I want to add the little, the way Matthew says it, because it's, it's slightly different. He says this way, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. That's a little more common man, a little more, you know, easy to, to follow and understand. But, Okay, so what do we got going on in here? Okay, we're, we're, we're setting up for another, another showdown, sort of. Let's see what's going on. Now, we know in and around the Galilee, all around there, the Pharisees were a substantial part of the population. And so, now, Matthew, for his part, he kind of makes it sound like they came from Jerusalem. Mark says it a little differently, you, you sort of get the f- sense that the Pharisees were already there, like, like the Pharisees were local, but it was the scribes that had come from Jerusalem. Now, it could have been either or both, or I, I don't know, uh, but I would say, just knowing what we know about the population, it does kind of seem more likely that the Pharisees would have been local and others would have come from Jerusalem. Anyway, the scribes seem to be more obviously from Jerusalem, we get that from the text, and what are they doing? Well, they're probably just checking Jesus out. I mean, they're maybe trying to keep an eye on him. Uh, maybe they're, uh, they're trying to answer their own questions. Is this guy the Messiah? Stuff like that. But this whole idea of not washing their hands when they eat, this, uh, we need to understand this. We're not talking about hygiene here. Hygiene is important. Uh, you know, we're all in favor, but that's not what we're talking about here. What's going on here, it's all about ritual purity. This is going to be so important for you to understand the rest of this story. Ritual purity. It actually 
In this case, we're actually relating to what is required of the priests that are on duty in the temple. They are commanded to wash. But what we see is, you know, some, like these scribes and these Pharisees, they've extended this, you know, somehow over some period of time. They've extended it to apply to everyone. It may, you know, we could call it unnecessary or burdensome or, or something like that. It isn't, it isn't like it's necessarily bad or wrong or sinful. And, and for whatever reason, it's just become a part of their desire to live constantly in a state of, I'm going to say it again, ritual purity. And then you can even imagine, like, one of the areas where this would have been very popular would be in and around the temple. So if you lived there, I mean, you could imagine how this was actually a way of showing kindness to your neighbor. Here are all these people who are trying to bring their sacrifices to the temple. They have to meet all kinds of purity requirements anytime they're going to be in and around the temple. So if the population that is always there around the temple wasn't taking care about ritual purity, it could really mess some people up, either intentionally or not. And so, I mean, you know, trying to find the silver lining, again, it could have been a way of even showing kindness to others. But what we have here is that they want Jesus and his disciples to comply. And remember, we're out in the Galilee. And, and then also notice, it seems that we're only talking about some of the disciples. And from the text, you do not get the sense that this has anything to do with Jesus himself. And one more little bit. I, I left myself a little note here. Jews, even today, do... Uh, some sort of washing and and things like that before they eat, etc. But I want to I, I want to point this out. What we're reading about here is different than what Jews today are doing. Obviously, it looks very similar, and and there are definite connections. But today, the practice it's more of a reminder of the things that were a part of the temple because they haven't had a temple for a couple thousand years. And it's also important to remember what God told the nation all the way back in Exodus whenever he brought them out of captivity in Egypt. He said, like, if you, quote-unquote, marry me, enter into this covenant with me, what did he say that he will make them? He will make them a kingdom of priests. Yeah. And that was what the whole purpose of the book of Leviticus was given to the people for. It it was a a guidebook for the actual appointed priest on how to relate to God and their fellow man. And then the, the common people were looking to the priest in order to find ways to emulate that within their everyday life outside of that temple tabernacle aspect. So that was ingrained within their culture. The same way that the priests were acting between God and the rest of the nation of Israel, the rest of the nation of Israel was getting to observe that so that they could do exactly like you said, so that the whole nation could be priests between God and, and all of the rest of the nations. Mm-hmm. That, that, so it's such a beautiful picture. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, I just was going to add with that cultural tidbit in mind, if we're taking what the text says with the Pharisees pointing out Jesus' disciples, in my mind, that just leads me to imply that Jesus was still observing this tradition. tradition. Yeah. And so it just leaves me with a question of, well, why weren't his disciples doing it in this particular setting? Like, was he a very open-handed rabbi and, like, let them make choices whether good or not good in order to result in teaching moments? Did he not know it was going on? Were they being rebellious? I don't know. It's just there's some really interesting dynamics that we right. don't know from what the text says that just add to this. Yeah. And it's a funny thing because what is this, the second or third time we've seen them doing things like this, where we get no indication that Jesus is the one, you know, involved in the infraction, if you want to say it that way, and yet his disciples are doing this other thing. And each time it's either been, well, that's not an actual Torah command, it's just a tradition of men, and so Jesus seems to be able to defend against those when appropriate, even though he seems to be observing them all himself. Or it, it, it does have something to do with commands, and it becomes an issue of priority. You know, human suffering, uh, alleviating suffering is more important than keeping the Sabbath or whatever. So yeah, really good. And, and I mean, yes, that's the beauty. That's what we want we, we ourselves to be doing all the time, and we want people listening to this podcast, yeah, ask those questions. What's up with these disciples? How is this happening? Are they... What did you say, rebellious or just clueless or, you know, <laughs> whatever, all these things? I, one of the things I've said in the past is what the, within these wrestlings is, was, is, was Jesus not being a quote-unquote helicopter rabbi instead of right. a helicopter parent? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't seem to be. He, mm-hmm. he seems much more about uh, the teaching and he, I don't think he cares whether it's before or after the fact. <laughs> He'll use it, right? But anyway, yeah, so anyway, that was an important point, just understanding what we're talking about here in the text it has to do with ritual purity, and even though you may see similar things today, there does appear to be a pretty distinct difference uh, between those things. Now, another thing is Mark, in chapter, uh, what is it, verse 3 and 4, Mark adds that this is, uh, the washing hands stuff is a tradition of the elders and that the scribes and Pharisees hold to many such traditions. And so what we're doing, I think, Mark is setting up the conflict. Um, It isn't, and this is also important, it isn't necessary that we consider any of these traditions to be inherently bad. But occasionally, Jesus is going to point out some badness, and in this case, some serious badness. The traditions, just so we remember where this comes from, their rulings, their explanations, their guidelines, etc., for the Torah itself. It wasn't supposed to be better than Torah or even equal with Torah, but It was an important and, I think, mostly good companion. Kind of like the way here in America we think about the Supreme Court, we think about decisions that have come in the past, we we refer to precedents and all of these things. It's kind of like that. It's not to say they got it right every time, but it's kind of like that. And so, 
Anyway, we're setting up the conflict. Um, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees in this particular case are saying, why aren't you guys doing it the way we're doing it? And Jesus and his disciples, uh, who, and let's remember, they are more closely aligned with the Pharisees than with any other group. But when they aren't aligned perfectly or properly, whatever you want to say there, those, those same Pharisees, they wanted them to straighten up and fly right. So that's the conflict, and now we're going to see the sort of the working out of it. Got anything, Samuel? No, just see what Jesus' response is. All right, here we go. This is Matthew chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, and Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. And if you'll notice, we kind of, we've switched the sequence on Mark a little bit to line up with Matthew. Kind of makes sense, reads a little better, whatever. Anyway, I'm going to read from Mark. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Well, if you were waiting for his response, Samuel, you just got it. He Ouch. laid it on him, didn't he? Ouch. Yeah. So uh, the, the question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Well, Jesus comes back with his own question. Why do you break the commandment of God? That's kind of one of those, my dad can beat up your dad moments, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. So Jesus isn't bothered by the traditions Generally, everything that we see in the text leads us to believe that he likely keeps them. That's the way it reads. The real problem here that Jesus is pointing out is when any such tradition makes God's instructions null and void. Mark says says that they reject a commandment in order to establish a tradition. That's the real problem. And Jesus, I don't think he's done yet, Samuel. He's going to explain that to them. And now, you might have this question. Jesus is bringing this up, and we know he gives an example about honoring father and mother and stuff like that, but but you got to like slow down for a second and think, why is Jesus saying this? It's almost like we have to look for well, which command was it that they, the scribes and Pharisees, were setting aside for the sake of tradition? You know, right here in this instance, which is, it's a different question. It's not what Jesus brought up in his example. And so, I don't know if this is right, but I heard it from someone else, and it's, it's actually a very interesting idea. So we may as well discuss it for a second. Matt, uh, Samuel, why don't you read from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. At least the bit I cut out there. 
but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Yeah. Now, I don't know that you would pick that up immediately from hearing it or reading it or whatever, but the idea behind this, what what had found its way into the Jewish culture, the Jewish understanding, was, as a general rule, you shouldn't embarrass or humiliate anyone in public. It's better to do that in private. Well, and of course, if it's in private, it shouldn't be embarrassing or humiliating, right? Mm-hmm. So, a possibility, and you know, just hold this loosely, it's okay, but it could be because they were making a big deal about what the disciples were doing right out in public, and, and that was kind of embarrassing or humiliating. Now, I know it's just a guess, but it may tie in a little bit later. We'll just kind of see how that works. I just want to lay that out there as a possibility. But back to the text, Jesus highlights one example of this whole thing of, you know, uh, overriding a commandment or ignoring a commandment, whatever, for their traditions. So the Torah, it's very clear that somebody, any, everyone must honor father and mother. And you can read that. It's back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. I'm, but everybody knows that, right? <laughs> Not everybody. And they also know that to revile their, their parents was, was worthy of death. And you could read about that in Exodus chapter 21, 17. But what are we talking about? So at a minimum, to honor is to provide for the physical needs. And and just to, to be clear, it uses that word revile. Okay, so to revile is to belittle or to make small, to make insignificant or to insult. Okay, we shouldn't be doing that to our parents. So by declaring something to be korban, and that's a term that was used in relation to the sacrificial offerings in the temple, to, to declare something as korban, they were keeping it from their parents. And this presumably prevented proper care of those same parents. So this was not honoring, it was reviling, and in that sense, it was worthy of death. Now, that all sounds kind of weird, so let's talk about a couple examples of things that they were doing. I don't know that this is absolutely positively exactly what they're talking about here or whatever, but you should be able to get the idea. So it would look like this. There'd be a guy, and he'd be trying to act all pious and everything, right? And so he would pledge money or property or whatever to God. And, and, and it, it looked like this. When I die, this thing that I'm pledging, well, it belongs to God, okay? And and even then, it's, you know, like practically speaking, that minute went to the temple, the priests, and all that kind of thing, right? Instead of this thing being sort of passed down as an inheritance or something like that. So, by making this kind of a pledge, it resulted in two things. First, uh, they could continue to use this, I don't know, money, property, resource, whatever it is, until they died, right? The leadership would allow that. But the second thing is, 
they could refuse to use those same resources to care for their parents or others, and and the leadership would actually prohibit that. This this you know religious leadership. So, for the greedy and the self-centered individual, for the Jewish leadership, I mean, this was kind of a win-win, at least, you know, in the eyes of man, obviously not in the eyes of God. Another way that this might work out is they might even vow, and this sounds so strange, they would vow that anything their parents received from them was immediately to be considered korban. So, they couldn't give their parents anything without it automatically becoming property of the temple and the priesthood, etc. So, they were effectively depriving their parents. And these are real-life examples, things that were going on. And, and this, th- this was the idea of traditions of men overriding or making null and void the commandments of God. So, it's an ugly, ugly thing. So that's... I'm I'm getting what you're saying, but that just I'm surprised that that is that that was a a thing within yeah. that period of time and culture, especially with this Jewish aspect of a bedav, uh, this family yeah. environment where not only do you have a mother and a father and their kids who are living under one household, but that. Uh, husband and wife, their parents live with them, and potentially yeah. their grandparents, aunt and uncles. Like it was a very collective. Like, come under our roof and let us take care of you. So yeah. I, I just part of me is trying to ask, like, what was the motivating factor behind these people doing this to begin with, of like, depriving their parents? Like, I just don't understand. Yeah, I, I know it seems crazy. I mean, the only thing that pops in my head is they just didn't like them. I mean, yeah, right? I mean, how many times have you seen family struggles, you know? And I'm yeah. sure, even, and everything that you described, very, very real. But, I mean, hey, they were still families, and families yeah. have problems. So, I, I don't know. But it's it's just ugly, ugly stuff, no matter how you slice it. And, yeah, I don't know what their real motivation is. But here's the thing. We shouldn't take these couple of, of examples that are truly ugly and and somehow think that all of the traditions of the elders are bad. They're not. But every once in a while, they would, and, and let's say they, they grew to contradict God's commands. I would bet you that pretty much every tradition started with really good thoughts and intentions, but somehow it got twisted, it got turned. And then ultimately they get used for injustice. And then, of course, they are really, really bad. Now, Jesus, you know, he's only offering this one example, uh, but he declares that they were doing many things like this. So, again, we've talked about how they scrupulously keep the law on one hand, and yet they totally do not understand the real point and purpose of the law, justice, mercy, love, kindness, forgiveness, all that. And and because of that, you see things like this grow out of it. Now, uh, again, Pharisees really good at keeping the law, but bad at seeing the purpose. They were supposed to, uh, I just, I, I don't even, I, 
The law was supposed to lead them to justice. And somehow it ends up doing the exact opposite. And there's only two problem, two possibilities here with the problem. It's either God and his laws weren't really that good, or people suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. If we just want to be bold with it, right? Well, which one do you think it is? You think there's anything wrong with God? Anything wrong with his commands or rules? No. People, we just find a way of screwing everything up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, most of the time I... I don't typically like this saying, so I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit, but there's this, I'm sure lots of people have heard it. The road to hell is paid with good intentions. In this case, you could say like the road to, I don't know, conflict between God's commandments and the traditions of the elders is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Good. Because, all the way back, I, mean, I know I'm a broken record. I go back to Genesis all the time, but it's the foundation of everything. If you go back to the creation story with Eve telling the serpent, like, no, God told us not only were we not supposed to eat of the fruit, we weren't supposed to touch it either. And there's like, it's funny, ironic, there's tradition that says that Adam was teaching Eve to quote unquote build a fence around God's commandments. Yeah. Like if God says that this is what he wants for humanity, not only should you do that, you should try to take a, an extra step to ensure that you don't put yourself in a position that you would go against what he knows is best for you. So absolutely probably the origins a lot of, of a lot of these tra- were fueled by people wanting to stay in alignment with God and uh, continuing to follow him sincerely. But, you know, humanity, uh, you know, always has a way of introducing selfishness, greed, in Jewish terms, the evil inclination. Like, it just, it's it's a thing, and it it messes up a lot of stuff. Yeah, and it's very sobering. It, it, It reminds us all that, you know what? We should always be willing to step back and, you know, what's the phrase today? Check yourself. Look at, you know, get back into the word. What is it really saying? And, and, and are we really sticking with it properly? Or have we, have we strayed? You know, it's like in our minds, one good thing, the next good thing, the next good thing, and the next thing you know, you're nowhere near the original good. And, and in fact, you're like messing it up. We, we should just be very uh, watchful, vigilant about stuff like that. You heard it here, Okie Dokie Most 2021. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> That's right. And we are about to wreck the next part of Scripture. I mean, we may as well get after it. No point in stopping now. <laughs> so this is Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. In Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, and again, I'm going to read from Mark. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition 
of men. It's amazing that Isaiah said something that was so incredibly perfectly in tune with the story, isn't it? Yeah. And I'd just like to add that uh, Jesus is showing his quote-unquote chutzpah here. He has some some real guts. He's saying some bold things to some bold people. Yeah, meek and mild. You heard it here first. So (laughs) Jesus calls them hypocrites. And what did we learn about hypocrites in this day and age, Samuel? What are they? They are, I mean, they're essentially putting on airs. They're not even, I mean, they're, they're doing the right thing, but it's completely for the wrong reason. Yeah, yeah. They may be doing exactly the right thing, but they're actors. They're putting on a show. Now, what Jesus quotes comes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And for what it's worth, if you were looking in your regular Bible, the the one that's based on the Hebrew, it's not going to match quite as well as what you would find in a Septuagint. Uh, At least it appears here what is quoted in Mark matches with the Septuagint. Your version probably says something more like, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, which, I don't know, that just doesn't, that feels not clear. I don't know. So what, what, they're, what he's trying to say in that phrase is their attempted display of reverence for me is based on commandments that originated with man and not with God. So you could probably hear if you say it that way, it lines up very well with everything we've just been talking about. And of course, the Septuagint version. Now, you got to take note of what's happening here. Jesus is comparing them to the Israel of old. And specifically, this would be the Israel before the exile or possibly during the exile, depending on how you read that. And this, this is a pointed criticism. Because, historically speaking, Pharisaic Judaism, so that would be the Pharisees, that had arisen because of the exile. It was intended to be the antidote to ensure that nothing like that ever happened again. They didn't want to be like those people. And here, Jesus is pointing out, they had become the very thing they hated. Now, there's a little life lesson for you. And, and Jesus, I mean, for his part, he makes it black and white. As Samuel called it chutzpah. I think he's right. They were leaving behind the commandments of God. They were taking hold of the commandments of men. And, I mean modern English, or uh, what would you call this, a colloquialism or something? They had taken their eye off the ball. And what happens when you do that, Samuel? You get a black eye. Swing and a miss, or a black (laughs) eye. Yeah, it's bad. So, it's another one of those conflicts between Jesus and some of the leaders. Okay, why, why do we keep reading about stuff like this in the gospel? Why are we reading about all these conflicts between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And this is one of those things, It's I don't know if I should call it counterintuitive. It's definitely something we never think of, 
But this is important to see. We read about all these conflicts, not because day after day after day, it was nothing but conflict. That's not it. It's because these conflicts were outside the norm. And if you're going to tell a story, what are you going to do? And today was a lot like yesterday. And today was a lot like the last two days. No, you're going to tell about the the stuff that's big, different, exciting, you know, whatever. So it's outside the norm. Jesus and the disciples lived most of the time in, in I you know, how do you say, uh, in perfect accord or in good accord, something that it was peaceful with first century Jews and first century Judaism. I mean, they were Jewish. And these stories represent the anomalies. Sometimes we lose sight of that. And so for whatever reason, I thought I'd mention it right here. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the culmination of all the Gospels leading up to the last week of Jesus' life on earth, the Pharisees are who is mentioned the majority of the time in terms of Jesus speaking with Jewish leadership. And I think that that is telling with his alignment with them compared to the other groups such as the Sadducees or the, um, oh no, what are the ones that go out into the desert and they're away from everybody? The Essenes. The Essenes, yeah. Yeah, and um, I think that that fits in line with both John the Baptist's and Jesus's call to repentance, not only for, let's just say, the nation as a whole, but you could see all of these interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees as Jesus critiquing them in hopes that they themselves would repent because like, he wants their system to come underneath the banner of the true Torah just as much as the random people that he interacts with in the towns that he visits day in and day out. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, on one hand, extremely refreshing and interesting and and all of these things when we actually slow down in our walk through the scriptures and actually notice all the things that are going on and, you know, here and there trying to pick up little tidbits about, you know, what was life actually like back then and 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 allow that to really enrich the way we experience our scriptures. On the other hand, it can be kind of crazy and disorienting and uh, it, it places you at odds with, you know, let's just say the majority of uh, the Christian world, at least here in America, because uh, some of the the stories, some of the ideas, some of the interpretation and understanding, it's it's just so deeply entrenched that when you say, yeah, but wait, it, it, it doesn't look like it says that, that you just said, or, or no, look, it says this, and, and that's not in their thinking, and therefore they don't accept it as possible, you know, or whatever. It, it, it becomes difficult to, to really communicate with some others on topics like this. But I hope, I know it's this way for us, I hope for anybody who's listening to the podcast, and if they're really, really 
you know, enjoying it and, and kind of following along and, and liking some of the things that they're seeing and hearing. And it's, it's new and, and uh, enlightening maybe in some way. I just hope that it's, you find it's totally worth it. I would rather know things that give me a deeper, richer understanding of God and the big story and have a few people kind of find me irritating (laughs) as opposed to just get along with everybody and go along and, and be fine and not really have that view and understanding. So I don't know. If I wasn't me and I was listening to this podcast, I would love it. (laughs) (laughs) Paul just gave his own rating and review of Okie Dokie Most. You know, and to be fair, if we're going to ask people to rate us and give a comment and everything, I should probably go out and do one myself, huh? Yeah, that's a a sign of true leadership is... (laughs) example i wouldn't ask you to do anything i wouldn't do myself (laughs) that's right all right well same i'm looking at the next section and there is no way that i mean that's going to take some time so i think i think we must call it and say until next time well until next time okie dokie thanks for listening to the okie dokie most podcast please don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. See you all next week.